This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Whenever I was in high school, and that was like the opening scene. The end is nigh. And I also am completely sure that nearly everyone in here has seen at least one cataclysmic movie where the world almost ends, and then uh, the ashes, it kind of rises again. Think like The Day After Tomorrow, or 2012, or San Andreas with The Rock, right? I've seen three, apparently. We talk about the end of the, of the world a lot in our culture, don't we? And when we talk about the end of the world, we usually mean like the end of time, how this whole thing wraps up. Well, today I want to be that guy on the street corner. I want to be the crazy climatologist saying, we've got to do something. You know, the, the guy that's always trying to figure it out, he's the first one to know. I want to be that guy in the movie for you this morning, but not screaming incoherently and not saying, we've got to figure something out, the world's about to end, it's about to all wrap up. I want you to see the sign and wake up to this reality, and the sign is this. I want the world to end for you today, every day after this, that you would live in it. I want the world to end for you today. At first thought, you may think that I'm, wishing harm upon you, dark skies and dystopia. But I say this sort of satirically to grab your attention, to hook you in, to let the scriptures illuminate what I mean by that. I want the world to end for you this morning. Would you look to our text this morning in 1 John chapter 2, we'll be in verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. God's word says this for us this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions, your translation said the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active. And so would it be alive in us, cutting us to the core, not to condemn us unto death, but to give us everlasting life, removing sin and making us be more and more like your son. Would you let me preach plain and clear that even children would understand? And God, would you be glorified, Christ exalted, and your people benefit? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So the odd stylistic nature of our text last week in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, remember it's kind of like a poem. I write to you, I write to you, I'm writing to you. That Remember that. If you weren't here last week, go read that or listen to the sermon on the Silver City Church app. Wink, right? The stylistic oddity of our text last week at once makes the shift 
to these verses in 1 John 2, 15 through 17 seem sort of abrupt, like we just ran over a rumble strip or something. However, we must remember John has given us a breather, the water break, the juice and graham crackers last week in those verses to encourage us and prep us for what's ahead. And it's right out of the gate, right past verses 12 through 14, that John begins with introducing new themes and old themes yet again. All at once, it's as if John is literally giving us the old stuff, literally giving us the old stuff with new, which isn't really new at all. It's old, just like he's talked about at the beginning of chapter 2. Smack dab in the middle of 2.15 is the idea of the love of the Father. Here's our old theme that John is going to press forward, enlighten in a different way. John does this with many other of the grand themes throughout the rest of his letter. He's kind of like a sculptor, taking the sculpture that's already gorgeous all the way into chapter 2. It's already perfect, and he makes these little threads and makes these little uh, ornaments, and he puts on the sculpture, and it becomes even more beautiful. The detail keeps adding to the gloriousness of this letter that we dare not miss. Genuine love for God, big idea, gives way to genuine love for neighbor. Back in 1 John 2, 11, you'll remember John says this, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Then comes the little water break breather. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. I'm writing to you, that kind of stuff, right? We are called to love our neighbors, right? 2.15 picks up right where 2.11 leaves off. With John clearing up, a possible misconception that may take place in his audience being called to love their neighbor. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to have the light of life shining in our eyes that it may shine out of our bodies, our lives, how we live. However, however, naivete would have us to believe that to love our neighbor means we love every single thing about them. In essence, This verse is John's version of ripping the coexist and tolerance bumper sticker off your Subaru Outback. Okay, this is what this verse is. And you all laugh because you know that they're on every Subaru that you see. Yeah, they come from the factory like that. (laughs) Right? Loving our neighbor does not mean we condone their sin and accept it. Seriously. Loving our neighbor does not mean that we condone their sin and accept it, let alone give applause to it, join in on it. And how does John make this connection? How is that there in the text? By underneath the text, behind it, in context, having us realizing humanity makes up the world, right? Do not love the world or the things of this world. This admonition of negation to not love, to not do something, comes on the heels of a positive exhortation to love God, love neighbor. So John wants us to realize true Christian love is not a giddy, you know, infatuated, tolerant, accepting love with a rainbow critical race theory flag that you wave and you can even let white people worship with you, right? This kind of stuff that the, the modern church that sold itself to the devil would say. The Holy Spirit through John is enlightening us to see this. True righteous love reserves that love for what is worthy, for what is honorable, for what is just, what is true. 
I'll say that again. True righteous love reserves that love, reserves itself for what is worthy, honorable, just, and true. And it is here that we are told for the first time in 1 John what not to love. Love God, love neighbor, love God, love neighbor, love God, love brother. Do not love the world or the things of this world. Now, the fresh Christian or someone who does not understand the language of the Bible, to them, this may seem confusing. And maybe it is confusing to you, even you seasoned veterans, because you hear the word world, right? the end of the world, and we immediately take our 21st century understanding of that word and kind of project it back onto the text. Whoa, 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 hold on. You mean God doesn't want us to love the world? I thought he created it. Aren't we to steward it? Aren't we to take care of it? See, we start thinking of the world just in these physical terms, right? You see, we equate world with earth, physical land, habitat, atmosphere, environment, whatever you would want to call it. That's not what John means right here. That word John uses for world is the word cosmos in Greek, where we get the word cosmos, as in cosmic, which we use in modernity to mean outer space. So, Bubby, tomorrow, when you eat a cosmic brownie, you can tell everybody, I know what the word cosmic means and where it comes from, right? Yes, cosmic, cosmos, right? And cosmic, we use the word cosmic as this, to mean just an ordered system. It just simply means an ordered system. We use it a lot of times in Western uh, the Western world, to me, like outer space, cosmic. Right? But cosmic simply means like an ordered system. You see, our, our households are what we would call microcosms, little mini structures, mini ordered structures that should be reflecting the big macrocosm of the Trinity. So within the New Testament, cosmos is used 180 times, mostly in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use it in the way that you would think many times, like land, earth, that kind of thing. Yet, this word is used sparingly in the other, uh, the other accounts, the other books that it's in. 14 times, I'm sorry, only, it's used sparingly within the Gospels, only 14 times between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Guess who uses this word cosmos the most in all of Scripture? John does. The Gospel of John uses cosmos 77 times, and Paul uses it a close second. But since John is the same author of 1 John and the Gospel of John, we need to ask how John uses this term lest we think that we need to get you know, ourselves derailed and set some chemicals on fire and begin littering. Right? Context is always key in letting us uh, understand that the Scriptures speak for themselves and they un- ensure that we don't misunderstand. So John certainly does use the word world in his Gospel to mean the overall earth, the land. But there are many instances where world seems to be used in a way talking about a system that is antithetical, that is against God. Let's take one of John's usages from his gospel and one of Paul's so we understand what what John's actually saying for us this morning. He's not saying, do not love the world, go just slaughter animals on your way home in your car and litter and throw cigarette butts out the window and throw pop cans on the side of the road and all these things. No, no, no. This is what John says. This is how he uses it. Jesus says this in John, the gospel according to John 15, uh, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, hold on a minute, how can the, earth, how can the land hate me? Right, so we at once see that it's being used in a different way. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul uses it the same way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the one that is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So here we see that the word world, cosmos, can in many contexts mean an ordered system of thought as it is in these verses. And there are many more or physical land. And that the world in our text this morning is this ordered system of thought that is shown to be depraved, rebellious, rebellious human thought, the pagan, the secular, the following after Satan type of thought. You see this. Now John is making more sense for us now, isn't he? Do not love the world or the things of the world. Please, everybody look at me. Please take care of the environment. Please steward the earth. Take care of it. Don't litter. Don't set it on fire. Good. Okay, it's not what we're talking about. Do not love the organized system that is against God. Think of it like that. Do not love this organized system or the things that are within that system that is completely against God. Do not love it as a system in total or the things of it. And realize that this organized system of sin is not like organized crime with some mafioso sitting in a casino back room somewhere like in Chicago that only affects like the the total scum of society. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about when we say organized. This organized system is more like a natural system. It's there. It's there and it's naturally human. Naturally human. So do human beings make up this system, this worldly system? Yes. Love them, pray for them, call them to repentance, but do not love the rebellious system and the sin that is in the outworking of that system. See, there's this saying that's become popular in the past 30 years, hate the sin, love the sinner. You've heard that. I'm sure you probably have. And I think it was either R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur, one of the two, it said something kind of like this, but it's the sinner. It's the sinner that God throws into hell, not that sin. Trying to kind of be, have a little there and, and I get it, like that is true, but that's sort of also splitting hairs because sin cannot be divorced from someone committing that sin because sin is not just floating around in the atmosphere like a contagion out in the ether, right? Sin is lived out. Sin is committed by people. So I and the Apostle John generally agree with the hate, sin, and rebellion, but love the person made in the image of God statement. For if we do not have that division and love both the sinful wickedness of rebellion against God in its many forms and love the person, then we are giving our blessing, we are giving our admonition, we are giving our credence to the sin itself, effectively joining ourselves in with that. Right? If we who say we are Christians truly love the Father who restores us to fellowship with Him, that we may rightly love our neighbor, then we will not love the very system that He brought us out of. We do not get to have dual citizenship. Indeed, we cannot. So question one. Question one of our self-examination this morning is kind of a two-parter. Do you love God? Okay then you cannot love the things of this world. Part two, 
What are the things of the world? What is that? And it is here that we joyfully praise God that he has not left us in the darkness trying to piece together a puzzle and, and try to figure out what that is. What's the world? What's the things of the world? How do I know? No, he has told us in the light of his word that we may not stumble. 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. See, at once we see that John is indeed defining world cosmos as a system of organized sin. And what we must understand is that it is this system that we are naturally born into. We are naturally born into this system. Case in point, parents, parents, there's a lot of parents in here. Did you have to teach your kids how to lie or teach them how to share? Teach them how to share. Teach them how to hit or teach them self-control? Teach them self-control. See, this doesn't mean, this, this worldly system, this doesn't mean that every single person is as bad as they possibly can be. It just means that this sinfulness is throughout the total society of humanity. That is why it is so glorious when God calls us out of this darkness into his wonderful light through awakening us to our sin, our need for a Savior, his provision of one through his son, Jesus Christ, and the restoration to fellowship with him, causing us to no longer be like Adam, hiding in the dark bushes, naked and afraid, but clothed in the robe of his son, walking in the coolness of day with him, the garden restored. That's why it's so glorious. That's why it's so glorious. You see, I keep talking about this grand theme, the big idea of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is us getting back to the garden of man being restored and God being restored to fellowship with one another. And it's John's definition of the world that we have this theme poking us in the ribs again and again and again three times to see that this really is the big idea. Let's look at the three components of this rebellious, sinful system, the world, and then observe how they can be traced right to the garden. The first one, the desires or lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. In the New Testament, the majority of the usage of the word flesh means your sinful, fallen nature. Thus, the desires of the flesh are the sinful impulses we often have and then often do. Our flesh. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Does it mean we're as bad as we possibly can be, like every single person is a Mussolini or a Hitler? But it means that we're all sinful. You, dear believer, as John has already told us in 1 John 1, you sin. And you, dear listener, you're a sinner. You are not just born good, you're born sinful. We see this. And in the New Testament, we see that the word flesh is used like this. Paul gives us a five-star kind of review on what it means, the desires of the flesh, what it means. You can read this for yourself in Romans 1, 18 through 32. But let me just give you a general list of ideas that he lists there. This is what the flesh means. Dishonoring the body by worshiping false gods. Here's one that's controversial. I didn't write the letter. I'm just the postman. Homosexuality in men and women. Envy. 
murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventing evil, disobedience to parents and authority in general, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. That's the flesh. That's the desires of the flesh. So that impulse to gossip about your coworker or your fellow church member, about how stupid they are, how ugly they are, how dumb they are, whatever, that's a desire of the flesh. That impulse to disobey your parents no matter what age you are. Because when I read in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, I don't see like a, you shall honor your mother and father until you turn 28. It is a lifelong, it is a lifelong command. You disobeying your parents and not honoring them, that's the desire of the flesh. Your justification of why you sin how you do, but that it's okay because of trauma or disease or because you're tired or hangry or I'm not educated enough or I don't know that, that's actually inventing evil and that's a desire of the flesh. Your self-fabricated depression because you didn't get enough post-likes or you didn't get that person, you know, to look at your Instagram feed, or, you know, you don't look like this person physically, or you don't have that person's kids, and all that pure bitterness that you carry around over stuff that happened a long time ago that you harbor and force other people to harbor with you, that's the desires of the flesh. Secondly, the desire of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. This is coveting grand supreme. Yet the, the lust of the eyes is not looking to things you want but can't have merely. That's part of it. Matthew 6, 22 through 23 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Your eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Ooh, scathing. Thought Jesus was supposed to be all fluffy animal like petting zoos. That's rebuking. The eye fuels the mind, which fuels the body. It's a vicious cycle. It just goes over and over. When we are called to open our eyes that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that we may receive forgiveness of sins, Acts 26, 18. Opening the eyes is a metaphor for what? Changing our thinking. Still use this metaphor today. Wake up! Glad. Some of you did kind of go like this. Glad to see your sneezing. Wake up, man. Wake up. Open your eyes. Those sensory organs that process your surroundings, right? Open those up, inside and outside. We hear the term like, in the mind's eye, or I saw it in my mind. We understand that. So while the lust of the eyes can be quite basic, lusting after someone else in a pornographic image or lusting after that car or that house or that spouse or that stuff. The eye is what fills the heart. You giving into using your eyes, both mentally and physically, in this manner, Jesus says is the essence of darkness. It is strange fire. Using what God has given you in a manner that he did not have in mind. 
And it can also include you wanting other people to lust after you, to use their eyes to look after you, and to think their mind's eye thoughts about you. One commentator, Robert Law, puts it like this, the lust of the eyes is a love for beauty divorced from a love of goodness. The love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. It is consumption, it is gluttony of the mind and gaze apart from there being any real benefit. It's the old uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder because beauty in the eye of the beholder is all about self-gratification. Number three, pride of life. This part of the worldly system is simply that of being a radical individual. Autonomous. An American, in many ways. A Westerner. Your own God. Self-made man. I do what I want. You setting the rules. You living how you want to live. You doing whatever you want to, whenever you want, because it's your life. It's now or never. You ain't going to live forever, like Bon Jovi sang about in the 2000s, right? It's the belief that your life is your own and that you can pridefully do whatever you want to do with it, answer only to whoever you want to answer to, and do whatever you want. It is the creature placing itself in the position of God and often desiring and compelling people to worship you, causing them to lust after you and their eyes toward you. That is what the pride of life is. This whole worldly system, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, this whole system that is opposed to God, that is anti-love of the Father, it's not new. It didn't come around in the New Testament age. It wasn't something that John was like, oh, we've got to battle this. It's quite old. It is quite ancient. It began in the Garden of Eden. And Ashley, I want to just commend you. What a beautiful name for a little girl, Paradise of God. It's what she will be, a beautiful little girl that I pray that dwells with him. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in this garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, flesh, desires, oh, it's good for me, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Well, obviously, you don't need to know Hebrew that it's saying eyes there, do you? Lust of the eyes, it was beautiful. It was beauty devoid of goodness. And that the tree was desired to make one wise, pride, grabbed it and ate it and gave some to her husband. Yes, this worldly system has been around since the fall because it was the fall, and we live with the ramifications of the fall. Some pastors will say that this is reductionistic, to say that all sin can be refined down into this system, but it's really not because the fall is reduced to this system. And isn't this man's tendency 
oh, you can't make every single sin kind of in that. There's some of these over here that they're sinful, but you, it's just nuanced. That's the word that the evangelical church uses now. It's nuanced. Yeah. Like we can, we can celebrate and affirm homosexual marriage, but we, we don't have to do it. We don't have to bless it. Are you kidding me? No, to cover up our simplicity of sin with a variety of excuses and justifications and devices and simple careless apathy, that's what Adam does. Dear listener, hear me. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this as you think about where you stand before the Lord. All sin, all sin is ultimately self-worship, which is idolatry, and there will not be any inheritance for the idolater except the lake of fire. I'll say it again. All sin is self-worship, which is idolatry. Don't believe me? Lust of the flesh, well, that feels good. I like to do that. I need more of that. Lust of the eyes, what I want to look at. Did you see that? I like looking at that. Oh, I like thinking about that. I want to be entertained by that. Pride of life. I'll live how I want to live. Look at my stuff. Look at my post on Facebook or Instagram. Look at me. Perfect life. Like, picture, worship me. Hate yourself. Long to be my friend. Look at me. I'm in control. Me, me, me. All sin is self-worship. Man placing himself in the stead of God. Blasphemy. When we blame shift our sin, and the reason we commit it onto someone else or some other situation, just like Adam, it's Eve's fault. And just like Eve, it's the serpent's fault. We are still committing self-idolatry by cursing someone else to take the fall so we can be vindicated. It's still the same game. We are not a bunch of smart, modern people. We're the same dumb old people that we've always been since the garden. We need to... Wake up. You need to wake up. I'm tired because my job made me work overtime. So it's, it's their fault that I'm too tired as the man of the house to lead my family in devotion. That's why I sit on the couch watching Netflix and teaching my kids and wife to do the same. Got to keep a roof over our head. That sounds really, really respectable in a way. Like you're, pro- you're trying to provide for your family. I get it. But do you hear how subtle the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is in that sentence. Your comfort, your desires, you saying, I know better than God's word. You follow me, kids. I'll teach you what to do. I can, I can binge watch a series in an entire week that would take an entire month. Watch me. Learn by my example. Do you love the Father? Dear listener, do you love God? And do not love the things of this world world itself. So, do you love the world? Thinking about what we've just talked about, do you love the world? Things in it. Verse 17, don't love the world or the things in that system because the world is passing away along with its desires. We've talked about desires. Here's desires again. Notice John uses the present passive voice. The world is passing away. The world is passing away. Ah, apocalypse, doomsday, the end is nigh. 
Wake up! Oh, open your eyes! The train thing in East Palestine, it's the end of the world! Right? Hold on. Hold on. Chill. This verse has nothing to do with the end of time or the second coming or whatever. What's our immediate context talking about in 1 John? The worldly system of sin and rebellion that we struggle with, that we're born into. What's our larger context? What was the purpose of 1 John? 1 John was written to assure those that were already walking in the light that since the light has dawned, they can be sure that they're forgiven, that they have forgiveness of sins. Right? As the light of the gospel goes forth, even when it looks really dark out there, we know because of the word of God the darkness has been exposed and that worldly system, it is passing away in us. It is passing away, passing out of darkness into the glorious light of God. And it is us who are called to be those reflective lights, reflecting the light of God into the darkness, shining cities on a hill, like Jesus says in Matthew 5. That worldly system, it has been defeated, just as Satan has been defeated, for they are one in the same. The ruler of this world has been judged and cast out, John 12. The world passing away means the light of the gospel is spreading far and spreading wide, high and deep, broad and long. And indeed, since John wrote 1 John way back 2,000 years ago, it certainly has. And just like a flame upon a wick, they flitter and jump and die down almost to an ember. If the wick be of God's lamp, I promise you, it will never go out. It will not. Indeed, it shall not. For God is their flame. Dear saint, hear me. Dear listener, your sinful nature must be passing away to you. You must desire to be holy as God is holy, desiring to follow him in righteousness because he is the light of light. See, the more that you walk into his light through his word, ordering your life around what it says, the more those worldly desires, they pass away. That doesn't mean that you won't struggle. That doesn't mean you won't get distracted. But if the cry of your heart is that old 90s song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, seriously, if it is, the longer you walk with him, the more those desires pass away. And since he is the light of the world. He can restore you unto relishing in the good things in his world that he has redeemed in his flesh, that there may be a restoration of Eden in your life where you enjoy and glorify him just as he at the end of his six days of creation said, it's all very good. My friend, do you realize, do you understand do you have the cogency to see this, that the reason Christ can give you any of this, the desire to be holy, the desire to walk in his light, the desire to love God and to love neighbor, the joyful assurance of salvation and his fellowship with you is because he, Jesus Christ, 
was tempted in every way, just as you are and yet without sin. Hebrews 4. We struggle with the world, with the lust of the flesh, with the lust of the eye, with the pride of life. Do you realize that Jesus Christ was tempted in this same way? And that is how he can provide salvation for you. Do you see this? I promise you, you need to. Christ Jesus, the second Adam, the true Adam, reversed the garden on your behalf, my dear ones. That is what he has done. And he has reversed the garden, where? In a desert. Christ was tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And in each temptation, we see a clear link back to the garden. This is why we can trust him. Number one, Satan, that old serpent, he tempts Jesus who has been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days to command stones to turn into bread to satisfy his hunger, lust of the flesh. He then tempts Jesus to jump off the highest point of the temple so that a band of angels would materialize and keep him from hitting his foot even on a stone, misquoting Psalm 91. Was the temple like just empty all the time? There were people there all the time. This was a call to get people to look at him. It was a lust of the eye. That last temptation is Satan offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus would simply bow down and worship Satan as if he were God himself, a temptation of power and of control and of living a life of self-pleasure, of being boastful and prideful about your life. Dear saint, dear listener, you hear this morning, Trust in Christ, for he has truly been tempted in every single way that you have, that I have, and yet he is without sin. He is our substitute. He is the second Adam. Look to him in faith. Look to him. Look to him. This is the gospel. Because of this, dear listener, the world, the simple desires of your flesh, eyes, hide, must be passing away. The last section of verse 17. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's John's favorite word again, abide. You live in, stay in, remain in, joyfully move in eternal fellowship with God forever by doing his will. Now here's the million dollar bonus question today. Here's the question that a thousand charlatan preachers and false Bible teachers want you to pay money for, buy their book or take their Bible course. What is the will of God? You abide in the will of God forever. What is the will of God? What is it? I, I just so happen to have a book that I've written. It's right here. They'll be selling in the lobby. The will of God? We don't go discerning that from some man or some woman. We get that from God himself. And he has told us. And shockingly, not what we think. You see, modern Christianity has taken the will of God as a phrase and attached it to individual phrases like, I just want to know the will of God for my life. I want to know if it's God's will for me to marry this person. I want to know if it's God's will for this job. I want to know if it's God's will, X, Y, Z. And when someone says that, I want to know if it's God's will, blah, blah, blah. What they're actually saying is this. I want to know my purpose, and I want to have some clarity about this decision. Am I supposed to be an engineer? Am I supposed to marry this person? Am I supposed to work here? Am I supposed to go to this church? But this isn't the will of God. 
This is the cart before the horse. All those questions really boil down to is this, is asking God for wisdom and trusting in his providence. Instead of speaking, God, what is your will for my life? Or some magic eight ball prayer. We need to ask God, would you give me wisdom and discernment about this situation? For I know the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps according to Proverbs 16. Above all, would your will be done? Would your kingdom come? God's will over his creation, and that includes you, that's called providence. And when something happens, the true mature Christian prays and says something like this, well, it didn't happen for that reason. It was God's will. Paul was an apostle by God's will. Yet when we think about the will of God specifically for our lives, it's not all passive. There's an active abiding living in the will of God. The will of God takes all that desire for discernment, all that desire for clarity, and pulls it up into itself and reveals the million-dollar question answer. What's the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. If you have your Bible, flip there because I never, ever, ever want you to forget this verse. What's the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you recede from us, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave through the Lord, we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Wow, look at this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be holy each and every day. And then Paul lists what that looks like. You abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit in you. What is the will of God? That you be holy as he is holy, desiring to know the instruction of his word, which teaches you, guess what? How to love him and how to love your neighbor. Indeed, the scriptures are instruction. They are a fuel that inflames our affections for God. And brother, this will, this is eternal. This will last forever. This is true living. It's not temporary and passing and fleeting and going away and your desires of your flesh. This is your Father's world that shall never pass, but shall increase. Everything else, everything else, your calling, your job, your spouse, flow out of trusting in this grand will, his sovereign control of the world, your sanctification, which comes through the word, which gives you wisdom and insight into what you're good at, what to look for in a spouse, and everything else we cause ourselves anxiety over. That's it. Dear listener, walk not in the world. Walk in the wisdom and the will of God. Repent of your sins. Repent of them. Confess them. Know that you have a loving Savior in Christ Jesus who died the death that you deserve, taking payment for your sin, death, that you may have eternal abiding life in Him. Abiding in his will, 
abiding in the garden, reversed. Eat of that tree, whether today is the first time or the millionth time, that tree bears fruit continually. Eat of it, you must. You can do so with confidence because this Savior knows what it is like to be tempted by this unholy trinity of sin, and yet he overcame them for the glory of God and your benefit, dear listener. Believe that and see the desert that he was tempted in is your wasteland and be turned from a barren wilderness into a lush garden, his garden. You see, if, if God is reversing the curse and restoring people out of that worldly system into the true righteous system of joyful fellowship that First John's talking about, then isn't he saving the world since the worldly system is played out in humanity? I'll close with this. Everybody's favorite verse. John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Realize God sent his only son into this system of rebellion that we find ourselves in that he should lovingly save us. Believe in this and have that old world end. Have your world end and that new world rise out of the ashes. The real world, your father's world, begin and declare in your life to be very good this day. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Grace and peace to you, Lord.